those are helpful, but really the Bible was written in a way for you to follow the flow of ideas from beginning to end, especially in a particular book. The author is giving you the context and the background. They're going to inform the different things he wants to teach you throughout the book. So there's great value in going through, not just in preaching, but also in personal Bible study, a verse-by-verse sequence from beginning of the book to the end. Now, Pastor Bobby, as you know, he has recently been going through the books of Peter, 1 Peter and now 2 Peter, and I know he's going to be wanting to get back to that soon. But I wanted to compliment him by beginning to go through, uh, or I should say, he's going through a New Testament book of the Bible, and I wanted to compliment him by starting to go through an Old Testament book of the Bible. And that's what I'm going to start to do today. I'd like to introduce you to a book that I'm going to be coming back to as the Lord gives me further opportunity to preach. This is a book that I got to know much better while in seminary and has really become one of my favorite books. So I pray that this time would be a benefit to us all. Let me actually pray now before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we need to hear your word today. We need it as our food. Help me to be able to speak it, Lord. Help me to explain it. Fill me with your power, Lord. Work in the hearts of your people to be encouraged, convicted, transformed, to walk as they have been called to walk by you in your word. Bless this time now. Speak to us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please take your Bibles and open to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the book that we're going to start looking at together. Old Testament book, right after Psalms and Proverbs. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has been become one of my favorite books, and that may seem a little strange to you, because, well, Ecclesiastes doesn't always have the best reputation among the books of the Bible. Some look at Ecclesiastes like it's bitter medicine. It is good for you, but it's not very pleasant. Oh yeah, Ecclesiastes, that's the book that totally depresses you about life. Uh... I guess I'll read it when I get to it, but I don't really look forward to it. Or some look at Ecclesiastes like it's an embarrassing family member, like some rebellious teenager that we'd rather just hide away, explain away, ignore. Ooh, isn't Ecclesiastes that angsty book that talks about how everything in life is meaningless and vain? Uh, Why don't we talk about something else? Let's talk about Ephesians. You know, blessings of God, salvation in Christ, armor of God. That's not a lot more exciting. Nothing against Ephesians, by the way. Also a favorite book. But Ecclesiastes? Still others look at Ecclesiastes like as a frustrating enigma. You know, Ecclesiastes says, on the one hand, that pursuit of wisdom, pleasure, or work is totally vain. But on the other hand, it commends those same aspects of life, wisdom, pleasure, and work, as good and gifts from God to be enjoyed. What's going on? Is the writer schizophrenic? Is he somehow disheartened and delusioned and this is all he can come up with? What do we do with this book? I think these perspectives on Ecclesiastes, they ultimately come from a misunderstanding of the book and its author's message. Ecclesiastes, it's true, is unique among the Bible books, But it does not contradict any of the other books. It is an important complement to them. Really, 
Ecclesiastes is a book that, once you really get to know it, it's not a book that should make you sigh, but a book that should make you smile. In fact, that's what the author himself says. Get towards the end of the Ecclesiastes. He talks about his words, and he says, these are like goads. They do prick you a little, but the writer himself has sought to use delightful words, full of truth. Ultimately, Ecclesiastes is supposed to be a delight. I've entitled my message today, Introduction to Ecclesiastes, How to Live Life Well in a Vaporous World. That really is the question that Ecclesiastes seeks to answer. And the answer is not as simple as, oh, just follow God, and everything will become understandable, it will be enjoyable and easy. No. Christians, those who follow God, they live in a broken world just as much as other people do. We Christians, too, need to learn how to face life in a way that we can live life well. This morning, I want to consider three introductory elements to help us appreciate what's to come in Ecclesiastes. They are, first, the author, second, the occasion, and third, the message. To do this, we're just going to focus on the first two verses of Ecclesiastes, but we'll be sampling a number of other verses throughout the book. Let's start with, number one, the author. Look at Ecclesiastes 1.1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Notice here that our author first identifies himself as a preacher. He's a teacher who's got something to say to a group of people, something important. Notice he also calls himself the son of David. The word for son here could refer to a direct descendant or it could refer to a more distant relative. But we're not talking about just any old son or any old descendant because of the next phrase, or actually, yeah, the next phrase, the last phrase, king in Jerusalem. So this is a son who actually ruled who reigned as king over Israel from its capital. But which ruling son of David wrote this book? We'll get more details about our author as we proceed into the book. I'll mention some of those to you. If you just look at the beginning part of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 12 to chapter 2, verse 17, you see that the author is someone who excelled all before him, he says, in wisdom and in greatness. He was able to accomplish whatever he wanted and to enjoy all the pleasures that came with being a majestic individual. Yet, our author also tells us that he's someone who looks back at his life pursuits with regret and some disillusionment. Ecclesiastes 12.9 adds about the author. You don't have to turn there. I'll just mention to you. This is what he says. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Considering all these details, there's only one ruling son of David who fits as the author of this book, and that is Solomon. This was written by King Solomon. Though the name does not appear anywhere in the book, that has long been the consensus of who the author is. Do you remember King Solomon? We hear all about him in the book 
of 1 Kings. Solomon was the direct son of righteous King David. He was chosen by David and also chosen by God to succeed David as king over Israel, over the United Kingdom. And he was the greatest king in all of Israel's history. He also was somebody who genuinely loved God. His heart was after God's. He humbled himself before God. He asked God for wisdom in order to govern God's people rightly. And God gave Solomon this wisdom and greatly blessed him. Solomon's reign in Israel was a golden age of prosperity. His wisdom was world famous and his influence in terms of political dominion was across the Middle East. No king in Israel was as great or as blessed as Solomon was. Yet we're told in the book of 1 Kings that as Solomon got older, his many wives, his many idolatrous wives, turned his heart away from Yahweh to serve other gods and to serve the things of the world, the treasures of the world. God confronted and chastised Solomon for this unfaithfulness. He even took away the majority of Solomon's kingdom in the days of Solomon's son. This is the one who speaks to us from this book. Solomon, the great, the wise, the righteous, the compromised, the chastised. He speaks to us likely at some point near the end of his life, looking back on all he's experienced, all he's learned and known, and where he's seen both God's blessing and God's discipline. He urges us to listen to this painfully learned wisdom that we need for our lives. Now, I should mention not everybody thinks that Solomon is the author of this book. More modern interpreters have different ideas. Some say the author is someone who just pretends to be someone like Solomon. He's just speaking poetically as if he were a great king. Or that actually this book has two authors. That there's a cynical, uh, king-like figure who has the core teaching of this book, but then someone else came along, a pious teacher, who adds his own teaching on top of it, and he redirects that cynical perspective. But these more modern views are needlessly speculative and they ignore what the author actually says about himself in the book. Moreover, they also come from a misunderstanding of what appear to be two contradictory ideas in the book that actually fit together and form one message. The truth of the matter is that God's Spirit moved Solomon to write these words. For his own people, but for us today. So we must listen, and we must give heed to it. But what was the occasion for Solomon's writing this? We now move to our second point. Occasion. Notice again verse 1. It says, the words of the preacher. The Hebrew word for preacher is the word koheleth. And it's a term that shares a root with another Hebrew word, kahal. Kahal refers most basically to an assembly, a gathered group of people. And a koheleth, then, is a leader or a speaker of an assembly, or what we could call a preacher. So then, were these words written down as part of an address to an actual gathered assembly? Was a mixed group of Israelites gathered to hear this speech or this teaching, this sermon from Solomon? It's 
possible. And certainly, there is a general applicability of the teaching of, of Ecclesiastes to all people, including our mixed gathering today. Whether you're young or old, saved or unsaved, life is going well for you or life is not going well for you, the words of God through Solomon are what you need to hear today. This is the wisdom of God given through one of the wisest men who's ever lived, and you need to hear it. But as we move through the book of Ecclesiastes, we notice that Solomon, even though he speaks to all people in one sense, he does have a particular group in mind. And we can see this from different details given in the book. I'll summarize some of these, and others I'll quote for you. For example, Ecclesiastes has a lot to say, as you move through it, on the subjects of rule, either ruling yourself or serving a ruler, managing wealth, working, giving counsel, receiving counsel. There's even some mention about a woman who ensnares versus a woman that you can enjoy. More significant, though, for identifying the primary audience are what we see again towards the end of the book. And you can turn there. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. I won't quote all the verse, but notice in 11, verse 9, Solomon says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Or if you skip down to 12, verse 1, he says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. And if you go down just a little bit further to Ecclesiastes 12.12, 12, notice one other phrase the author uses. He says, but beyond this, my son, be warned. So who is Solomon most concerned about instructing in this book? Young. It's young people. People who have the greatest portion of their lives ahead of them, who are forming their ideas of what they want out of life, what they'll pursue in life, what their goals are. To be most particular, Solomon has in mind young men, even people who will be part of the administration of the kingdom, people who will rule on behalf of the king, people who will serve the ruler, young men in this role. But again, that is not to say that the book is irrelevant for people who are not men or who are not in some sort of political administration. No, again, there's something for all of us here. But certainly we should appreciate that this book has special relevance for those who are young. So let me address those of you who are young. You can decide yourself whether you're one of those people. You need to listen to what God is saying to you from his word in this book. You're now forming your ideas about life, about work, about your goals, about the path you will pursue. You need to learn from an old, wise man who went to the nth degree to understand what life really is, what is really good in life, what is the wise way to respond to life. Do not insist that you already know everything or that you'll just find it out yourself. You'll learn the hard way. No, rather listen to someone who went before you. 
someone who was guided by divinely given wisdom to understand life better than any of us will. You won't like some of the things the teacher says at first, but afterward, you'll be blessed by it, even happy because of it. And know that this teacher, this old man, this experienced king, he doesn't speak to you out of some mere moral duty. I'm here just to make sure you don't have any more fun in your life. It's not his perspective. Rather, he speaks like a father to a son. He's full of care for you. He wants what's good for you. He wants to protect you. Solomon speaks to you that way, to your young person. Actually, he speaks to all of us that way. And through him, God does. This is actually the words of our Heavenly Father to us from his caring heart. So we've seen the author, we've seen the occasion. But what is Solomon's main message in this book? That's our third and final introductory point where we'll spend most of our time today to talk about the message. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, you can turn back there. Ecclesiastes 1-2 gives the central assertion of this book. And it is the foundation for the rest of Solomon's instruction. Look at what he says there. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity, Solomon says. This is an extremely important word in Ecclesiastes, and it appears throughout. The Hebrew word translated vanity in the New American Standard is the word havel. Now, I give you that Hebrew word because it's one of the Hebrew words that actually might be good for you to know. It doesn't have an exact equivalent in English. It has some nuances to it that are hard to capture in a single English word. Havel literally means vapor, breath, or wind in Hebrew. So if you're trying to think of what Havel is, think of a mere puff of air, or the vapor on a coffee cup, or even a passing sigh. That's Havel, right there, that was Havel. The literal meaning of Havel helps us to understand the metaphorical meaning that is used throughout the scripture. Havel literally refers to something which is insubstantial, something that you cannot hold on to, you cannot fully grasp it. So figuratively speaking, Havel refers to something that is empty of genuine gain or something that is fleeting, doesn't last, or something that is past full understanding. Just can't wrap your mind around. This figurative usage is used throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. I'll give you a few examples. Idols in the Old Testament, false gods, they are often referred to as havel. They are emptiness, mere air, totally useless. Another example of havel, a little different though, is Proverbs 31.30. Proverbs 31.30 says that beauty is havel. That's not to say that beauty is meaningless, or it's evil, or it's worthless. It's just, it's fleeting. It's insubstantial. It's like you see it, and then it's gone. 
And even in this book, Ecclesiastes, we see another nuanced use of it. And go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and 8. Solomon will mention some life situations that don't seem to make sense, don't seem to have a good answer to them. Like, why does the righteous person perish sometimes like a wicked person? Or why does a wicked person live out a long life of blessing like a righteous person should? These are called Havel. These situations are called Havel. Not because they're meaningless, not because they're fleeting, but because it doesn't make sense. There's no answer. You can't get a grip on what's going on there. Each of these figurative nuances ought to be in our minds when we see the word vanity or the translation of Havel as we move through Ecclesiastes. It's not as simple as the English translation vanity or meaningless, though that can be the meaning in certain contexts. I think it's more helpful to think of the term as vaporous. You think Havel, think vapor. And then by extension, think something insubstantial, something impermanent, something that is ultimately incomprehensible. That's Havel. And what does Solomon say is Havel according to Ecclesiastes 1-2? Everything. All of life is Havel, he says. Everything is like a vapor that you just can't catch and you can't hold on to. And look at how emphatic Solomon is in this assertion. Vanity of vanity, Solomon says. Havel Hevelim in Hebrew. Vapor of vapors. What's the meaning of that grammatical construction? It's just the way that the Hebrews often express the superlative. That is the most of something. We see this in other instances, right? King of kings, what does that mean? Greatest king. Holy of holies, what does that mean? Most holy place. So what does Havel of Havels mean? It is the most Havel of all. It is the most vaporous of all vapors. And Solomon says that's what life is. Everything in the world is that. And not only does Solomon use the superlative, the most, he then repeats it. And then, just in case any of us has missed the point, he has a third statement, all is Havel, all is vanity, all is vapor. Now, can you believe that? The wisest man who ever lives, who loves God, the one who's seen it all, he concludes, life is the most insubstantial of vapors. And it's not as if this line here at the beginning of the book, this was just some passing thing he said and didn't really mean. This was just some moment of discouragement or depression. He didn't really mean that, kiddos. No, because notice the end of Ecclesiastes. Sorry, I'm going to ask you to turn there again. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is right near the end of his discussion. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. What do we see? Almost the same thing he said in the beginning. Ecclesiastes 12.8 Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Solomon's assertion here at the beginning and end of the book, this is not the cry of a temporarily depressed king. This is a thoughtful and steadied conclusion 
about what life really is. And Solomon wants all of us, especially you young people, to hear it. Life is a vapor of vapors. It is insubstantial, impermanent, ultimately incomprehensible. Now, does that statement sound radical? Or even irreverent to you? But may I point out to you that the other scriptures actually agree. You actually heard it earlier. Psalm 39, right? Psalm 39, verses 5 to 6, just to remind you, says this. This is King David speaking to God. Psalm 39, verses 5 to 6. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath at Tavel. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Psalmist agrees with what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. And it's not just the Old Testament because, listen to the New Testament. James chapter 4. James 4 verses 13 to 14. The writer James says, Come now. You who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So make no mistake, friends, it's true. Life is a vapor of vapors. And this is true not only for those who do not know God, it is true for those who do know God. We all live under the same sun in this vapor of vapors world. We all live in a world that is subjected to futility, as Romans 8.20 says. You can't escape that. You can't exit the world just by being a Christian. No, you live in the same one. But how should you live in it? See, that's the question. That's the question Solomon wants to provoke in us because that's the question he wants to answer. See, Solomon is no nihilist. He doesn't believe that life is meaningless. Neither is he a cynic who's just jaded about life. No, he's thought about this. And he wants to take important time in his book to tear down the false notions that we all carry within us about life. He does that so that we can see clearly and then know how to walk in the wise way. And let me give you some instances of how Solomon does this. I'm going to give you some questions that he raises. I'm not quoting him, but kind of paraphrasing some of the ideas he brings up. Here's one of them. Do you think that by working hard that you can change the world? You can eliminate injustice? You can eliminate poverty? Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes 1.9. Ecclesiastes 1.9, Solomon says, That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Or just go down a few verses. Go to 15. Ecclesiastes 1.15. Solomon says, What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Some things can't be changed no matter how hard you try. 
Or do you think that devotion to knowledge will unlock the way to your golden future? To mankind's golden future? We just got to get our scientists together, our philosophers together, our politicians together. We can figure this out. Look again at Ecclesiastes 1, verses 17 to 18. Solomon says, And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Skip ahead to Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes to chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Solomon makes another comment about the search for wisdom. Ecclesiastes 8, verses 16 to 17. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Here again, Solomon readjusts our perspective. He says, there are just some things you'll never figure out. Some things you'll never know. In fact, some things that you do learn, they won't make you happier. They'll make you sadder. Because you'll just see how hard life really is. And you'll see your own limitations. Some things you just can't figure out. There's more. Here's another question raised by Solomon. Do you think that the pursuit of any particular, particular pleasure in your life will bring you lasting joy and satisfaction? Go back to Ecclesiastes in the beginning, chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. Solomon tested that idea. This is his conclusion. Verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. Or you can even back up just a few verses. Go to chapter 1, verse 8. Solomon says, All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. No matter how much you go after that pleasure, it will never satisfy you. You'll never arrive and you'll never be able to hold on to it. It might be really exciting at first, but it won't, it won't fulfill you. What about wealth? Do you think obtaining wealth will solve all your problems and bring you happiness? Go to chapter 5. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Start there. Ecclesiastes 5, 10. Solomon tells us like it is. Ecclesiastes 5.10 He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. It's a vow. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Skip down a few verses. Go to verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. 
He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Oh, actually, I want to read more, one more little thing there. Verse 17. Throughout his life, all that hard work, straining for that wealth, what's the experience? He also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. You never found enough wealth. And if you found it, it didn't satisfy you. And what kind of existence did you endure just to get that? Continual hardship, vexation, anger, even sickness. Because he said, i got to get more. It's all a waste. It's all Havel. What is Solomon trying to show us in these passages? That if you don't realize the Havel nature of this world, then you are going to live a foolish and frustrated life. You're going to run endlessly and strenuously after various treasures in life, whether it's wisdom, it's power, it's pleasure, it's your accomplishments, it's control. These things cannot provide for you what you are seeking. It's like right when you're about to get it, it vanishes before your eyes. Or right when you've gotten it, it disappears from within your hands. It's Havel. A vapor, a vapor of vapors. You may ask, that is extremely depressing. Why is life like this? Why would God make us live in such a Havel world? Well, Solomon doesn't explain that answer specifically, but he assumes what is written in the parts of the Old Testament written before Ecclesiastes. God did not make the world a Havel world. That was not his original design. Actually, Genesis 1 to 2 stressed that God made the word world very good. It didn't have futility in it. It wasn't a Havel world. But when the first man and woman chose to rebel against God and to seek satisfaction apart from God through sin, they plunged the world and all of us too into a Havel state. God even proclaimed to this first pair how much pain and trouble and toil and frustration would be in the world because of their choice to sin. Including that greatest pain and frustration, which is death. Everything in the world is subject to death and decay. That is why it is insubstantial and fleeting and unsatisfying. But that was not God's design for the world. That didn't come from the goodness of his heart. That came from man's rebellion and sin. You might be asking, well, is that it then? The great wisdom of Solomon is basically prepared to be disappointed in life? Well, actually, no. Because there's something more. Let's go again to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. Solomon gives a summary application for living in a Havel world. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, last two verses of this book. Solomon writes, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is, 
Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. This final word from Solomon is important in that it emphasizes two fundamental truths. The first is that there will be a divine judgment beyond this life. Yes, this world is insubstantial, it's fleeting, it's mysterious. But what happens in it, even in your vaporous life, matters to God. Even though your works and your decisions will have little relative impact on the world, your name will be forgotten quickly after you die. Nevertheless, God will require an account of you for how you lived. The message of Ecclesiastes is not, and make sure you get this, it is not that nothing matters. Because even as we see here, God will one day reward the righteous for their good, even their seemingly insignificant good, and he will punish the wicked for their evil. And of course, the rewards to the righteous, they only come via Christ, because we can never do anything righteous on our own. Only when we've been saved and regenerated will we receive a reward. But that's only one aspect of it. Solomon emphasizes there will indeed be a divine judgment. What you do in life does matter in the eternal sense. But there's a second thing he emphasizes, and that is man must embrace his lot, his assigned portion, to be righteous and happy. Because notice the phrase in the middle or at the end of verse 13 that's translated because this applies to every person. Literally, the Hebrew is, this is the whole of man. Whole of man? Actually, other translations kind of try to explain that phrase a little bit more. For example, ESV and I think others says, this is the whole duty of man. But even that, I feel like, doesn't quite capture what's being expressed here. Living in reverent fear of God and keeping his commandments is not just man's duty for which man will be judged. It's actually what man was created for. It's man's design. It's like the optimal working condition for man. Man was not created to live for himself or to live for any of the treasures of the world. He was created to live in a worshipful, dependent, and loving relationship with his creator, God. This is his lot. This is what man is created for. And if he embraces that, he'll be happy and he'll be pleasing to God. Therefore, if we want to be happy and wise, we must embrace the lot that has been given to us. And do you know what is central to this lot? to this living independent relationship with God and worshipful relationship with God. It is actually to thankfully enjoy all the gifts that we receive in our vaporous existence. Let me say that again. A central, amount, a central element of man's design, man's lot, God's 
perfect decision as to how man should be. It is for man to thankfully enjoy the fleeting gifts that God provides under the sun. If you feel like that came out of nowhere, let me tell you, it's actually what Solomon says again and again in Ecclesiastes. Even though Solomon emphatically teaches how everything in life is an unsatisfying vapor in and of itself, seven times Solomon commends the enjoyment of life as a gift from God. Even in such vaporous aspects of food, drink, work, companionship, and youth. Let me show you. I'll just give you a few of those instances. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Solomon says, I know, but this isn't something he's supposing, I know that there is nothing better for them, that is people, than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks Eats and drinks, sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Look at another one. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 19. This is right after that section where he says, if you seek wealth, you're not going to be satisfied by it. Look at verse 18. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Let me show you one more. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7, down to verse 10. Ecclesiastes 9, 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, your Havel life, which... He has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. I don't know if you're thinking like, wait, that just doesn't compute. How can I rejoice in something that is so fleeting and even frustrating? The answer is simple. Stop expecting too much from it. This is a simple truth, but it is often missed. What Solomon wants us to realize, what God wants us to realize, is that when we do not look for too much out of life or out of any particular portion of life, we can enjoy what life actually is as a gift from God. To say it another way, when you recognize the limits of what life can and cannot do for you, you can accept it and make use of those limited aspects of life to live wisely and even to rejoice. Your work won't fundamentally change the world. But you can do genuine good through your work. 
And you can rejoice in your work as God's portion to you. He wants that you enjoy your work. No earthly pleasure will bring ultimate fulfillment, but you should enjoy godly pleasures that you experience in this life. Music, beautiful landscapes, good food. These are limited but kind gifts from your God to you. Pursuing wisdom will not unlock the secrets of the universe to you, but it can help you make better decisions in life. Wealth will not ultimately secure you, but saving money and making diverse investments can help you in unexpected calamities. That's something that Solomon says. Or no companionship will last forever or bring ultimate fulfillment. But instead of bemoaning and fearing the loss of someone you love, thank God for that person and rejoice in every good moment that God gave you to share with that person. It was a gift. It is a gift from God. You see, rejoicing in our Havel lives is part of our lot. It's part of the whole duty of man. And if we refuse to do this, not only are we foolish, because we're just going to be miserable, but you know what else we are? We're sinning against God. Why? Because one of the most fundamental sins that God indicts the unbelieving world for in the scriptures is lack of gratitude. Romans 21 says, speaking of unbelievers, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And they ought to have. Why? Acts 14, 17. Acts 14, 17. And yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God is giving you gifts. You ought to be thankful for them. And isn't that what the New Testament also says in terms of a positive commendation? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Or 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4, speaking against false teachers and what they inappropriately do, it says, they are men who forbid marriage and abdicate, advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. So yes, life under the sun is a vapor of vapors, yet it is still to be gratefully received and enjoyed in the fear of God to the glory of God. I would sum up the message of Ecclesiastes this way. Life is a vapor, but enjoy it as a gift and not as gain. I'll say that again. Life is a vapor, but enjoy it as a gift and not as gain. If you think that life or some mere thing in it will be to you, your ultimate salvation, satisfaction, or security, then get ready for painful disillusionment. You will not find gain in life. 
But if you recognize the limitations of life and just receive it as a gift through your and my little sojourn, then you will live wisely and happily and you will bring honor to God. Now, this is just an overview of the message of Ecclesiastes. Solomon has some specific arguments and assertions that I, that we need to consider together. And so that's why we'll, Lord willing, move through the book section by section. But I wanted you to see the overview today. Just from today's overview then, just from this introduction, consider what the Lord's word in Ecclesiastes means for you. You need to ask yourselves, what are you living for? What are your goals? What are you straining after? What are you pursuing? And why? Do you think there's something in life that will be gain to you? Do you see that a life lived that way is ultimately doomed. It is doomed to frustration, it is doomed to disappointment, and it is doomed to the judgment of God. Because he says, look at all those gifts I gave you. Why were you so ungrateful? Do you instead see from the wisdom of Solomon that if you will humble yourself and acknowledge life to be what it really is, you will stop living for this world and instead live for God, live for Christ, then not only will you escape the judgment of God, not only will you inherit eternal salvation with him forever, but you can enjoy life. You can enjoy life just seeing again and again the little kindnesses of your father who says, here's something else for you. I love you. Here's something else for you. Yes, the world is cursed, but here's something else for you. Let us also remember that though God is so gracious to give us such loving gifts in this life for his own, the world will be different for them one day. God will actually change this world. The Havel aspect of the world will be something that God causes to pass away. For those who know God, they are going into that world. We taste it now but we'll know it in full later. Is that true for you? Have you repented and believed in Jesus Christ? Have you turned from the treasures of this world, from living your own way, from insisting upon finding what you think is good in your own gain, living independently from God? Have you turned from that? Turned from your sin and instead turned to God in Christ? saying, not my way, your way. Lord, there's no amount of good works I can do to satisfy you. It is only the work of Jesus on my behalf. It is only his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection and ascension that can make me right with you. God, I live for you. It's the end of myself in my own way, but it's all you now, God. If you do that, you will inherit eternal life and you will experience eternal life 
even in the kindnesses that God gives you in this world. That's the wise way. That's the happy way. That's the way Solomon wants you to walk. That's the way God wants you to walk. This is an appeal. God could command, don't you dare live this certain way. But Ecclesiastes is an appeal. That's because our God is a loving God. He wants you to walk the wise way. Will you do that? Won't you listen to him? Especially those of you who are young. We must heed the loving voice of our Father. Life is a vapor, but for those in Christ, it is also a gift and not gain. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. This surprising and yet very good word from Ecclesiastes. Lord, thank you for the gifts you give us, even in a world that so frequently doesn't make sense, so frequently has, has things that are just so fleeting and insubstantial, and yet you are so good to us in it. And you've called us to gratefully enjoy it. Lord, we thank you for the gifts you provided, but we also look forward to a day, Lord, when what you will provide is even greater than this, a world without futility, a world without death, a world without sin. Lord, for those who know you, they're going to that world. Those who have repented and believed in you, they're going to that world. Thank you, God. We look forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, at this point in our service, we're going to transition to outside so that we can sing together. For any of you who are on the live stream, I have some good news for you today. It looks like we'll be able to stream the songs outside as well. So please continue to be on the live stream and you can continue to worship with us. You don't need to restart the stream or exit the stream. You should be able to just continue watching and listening and you'll be able to worship with us. So for those of you here gathered, please would you make your way to the exit in a socially distanced way. We'll sing two songs outside. You can find the words in the bulletin.